Hi, this is Mark Rabin. Before the episode, let me quickly tell you about my new book. It's titled Measures of Success. It's a book that will help you react less to your performance metrics, every up and down in those. It'll help you lead better. It'll help you improve more. So you can learn more about the book by going to www.measuresofsuccessbook.com or you can search Amazon. It's available as a print book, a Kindle book. It's available through Apple Books. I hope you'll check it out. Hi, this is Mark Raven. If you like this podcast, you might realize I have a blog, leanblog.org. Did you also know that I have another podcast called Lean Blog Audio? And there I basically, occasionally, or as often as I can, I read audiobook style versions of blog posts. So you can go to leanblog.org slash audio or search in your favorite podcast place for Lean Blog Audio. I hope that'll give you something else uh, that's food for thought, something else to help you in your lean journey. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 246 of the podcast for March 17th, 2016. Today's episode is my second this week in recognition of Patient Safety Awareness Week. And my guest is Steve Montag. He's a returning guest. We talked about lean and crew resource management back in episode 195, just over two years ago. Uh, he's done a lot of things. He'll introduce himself. He's a fellow Texan and a near neighbor of mine in the DFW area. Today we're talking about a number of topics, including patient safety and checklists. What's the difference between, if you will, good checklist systems and bad? And what are the parallels to lean done well and lean done badly? We'll talk about a number of articles in recent events, including how uh, an article that said NHS employees in England are afraid to speak up and report errors. An Iowa hospital had four wrong site surgeries in 40 days. And we'll talk about the recent brouhaha about lean, Toyota, and Taylorism in the New England Journal of Medicine. And you'll also hear me ask some incredibly long and poorly formed questions, but such is life sometimes in the podcast. I hope you enjoy the discussion of Steve has a lot to offer, and I hope you uh, enjoy it. Um, to learn more and to see links to all these articles, you can go to leanblog.org slash 246. Steve, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for coming back and joining us again on the podcast. Well, I'm really excited to be here, Mark. So you know, I do want to invite listeners, um, you know, they may want to click pause and go back to episode 195 or just listen to that. Um, some other time, uh, back in 2014, we talked about lean and crew resource management, and, and Steve is you know, very uh, you know, uniquely positioned to be able to talk about um, lean and patient safety and healthcare and lessons from the aviation space. But for people who didn't listen to the last episode, can you give you know, kind of the, uh, the briefer than it deserves uh, synopsis of your background and career for us? Yeah, the uh, the the thirty second synopsis, I guess. Uh, I'm a um, retired Navy fighter pilot, um, and when I left active duty, I, I went to work for American Airlines. So I continue to fly um, as a uh, international pilot for American Airlines. And then um, about thirteen years ago, I was uh, asked to start uh, working with some hospitals on helping them to incorporate. Uh, and adapt um, 
best practices from high reliability organizations uh, into their standard of care. And uh, it's, it's really become quite a calling for me, and, and it's what gets me up in the morning, gets me out of bed in the morning, is, uh, is trying to figure out ways to help great people do even better work. Yeah, and you know, as we've talked about before, you know, that's one of the parallels, the recognition that systems and processes and culture matter, um, that these problems that we see are not the fault of bad apples. And, you know, it's great that, you know, that you're coming in and working with these good apples and, uh, you know, helping them do better work, not just uh, this week, but but every week. And, you know, what, when I say this week, you know, part of the reason we are, are doing the podcast here is to talk about the annual uh, Patient Safety Awareness Week that's promoted by uh, the National Patient Safety Foundation and and other organizations. So you know, on on this topic of of awareness, Steve, I was wondering if you, if you could sort of you know share some of your thoughts about why or, or what the level of awareness is both for healthcare organizations about the need to improve patient safety and awareness in the general public. You know, I. I think that they are both on the rise. Um, I, I uh, you know, when I started working with hospitals 13 years ago, um, I, we, we often sort of felt like a voice crying in the wilderness, and uh, clearly that has all changed. Um, uh, you know, when I begin to talk about the work that I've done, uh, you know, people have a knowing look in their eyes, and they recognize, ah, okay, yep, safety systems, I get it. Um, and and so I, I think there is a greater reception uh, in healthcare. There is uh, growing uh, concern, uh, and that's driven partly by by uh, CMS. They are are slowly uh, over the years they've been raising the bar on what are acceptable outcomes and what are unacceptable outcomes. And so um, it's it's both I guess a bit of a, a financial prodding, uh, but also um, you know, everybody in healthcare wants to do the right thing. I think it's mm-hmm. just greater awareness of, boy, we, we sometimes get it wrong, and that is many times preventable. So um, I, I don't generally get as much resistance as I used to get. And then when it comes to the general public, um, you know, so I'm working with some folks in Indiana, and uh, next week I'll be up there uh, doing some workshops uh, up and down the state. And one of the topics that we're talking about is sepsis and the uh, surviving sepsis campaign and such. And um, the my point of contact at the Indiana Hospital Association told me that uh, during halftime of the Bears and Packers game, there was a uh, a one minute commercial about sepsis and about mm-hmm. how it's you know um, it, it's a it's a big deal and it. Um, it's a you know patient safety topic, and so I, I think they are both on the rise. And um, you know, so th- I'm not sure that there is a public outcry for it yet. I don't mm-hmm. think it's gotten to that point of awareness, but um, th- I think it is it is rising. Yeah, and you know, it, it's still even with that awareness, um, there's there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, you know, the, if you look at the data, and this data is always kind of you know, fuzzy and hard to know for sure how many patients are harmed or how many people die every year. Uh, it seems like there, there's consensus, though, that um, the, the problem is still a big one. And I think that kind of points to the need, um, you know, to, to make this a focus and, you know, front of mind discussion every single week of the year. Um, is, is that part of, 
you know, kind of talk a little bit about the work you're doing with operating rooms and executives. How, how much of the solution is just making sure that, that people give uh, daily priority to, to safety instead of just talking about it occasionally? Yeah, I, I think that that the, um, you know, building it into into work practices, I mean, exactly like we do with, with, with standard work, you know, um, it, it makes it easier to, to do the right thing, um, to practice safely, um, just because that's how we always do it. And, and so I don't have to light a candle and say, okay, now I'm going to be safe for the patient. It, you, you build the safety into the work processes and we do that by working with them and, and building standard work, um, how do we start a case? How do we start the shift? How do I uh, properly relieve uh, you know, the CRNA uh, so that uh, she can go and, and get a bite to eat? Um, if it's if it's built in and it's just part of the care processes, then then we don't have to, um, you know, stop and stop what we're doing, stop providing care for patients, and be safe. Um, and so safety done well is transparent but not invisible. You can point to specific behaviors as to how they hand off the patient, how they brief the case, um, and say that that right there is is a safety statement. That statement right there is intended to open lines of communication and ensure that we are cross-checking our you know one another's behaviors. Um, and so I can see that it's happening, but nobody nobody is saying, okay, now it's time to be safe. So mm-hmm. it's it's just there. It's in the and it's it's running like an antivirus, um, you know, does on a, on a computer. Yeah, it's it's always there. And I mean, I think you know the phrase safety culture, as opposed to thinking of safety as a program. I think that I think you know I think that's important language. Even back in in manufacturing, uh, when when I used to work there, you know, the the best performing companies in terms of employee safety didn't depend on a safety department. It was just built into the way uh, everyone did things, and it was a priority, and it, and it was clear that you didn't cut corners on safety. Bad manufacturers, uh, and I've seen some of this too, they do cut corners on safety because they make you know, uh, the daily production quota the priority, and, and they tolerate people doing things in an unsafe way. So the, you know, this isn't just a healthcare problem and not just uh, you know, formerly a problem or you know, formerly a worse problem in aviation. Some of this, you know, it's, uh, it's just it's interesting human nature of, you know, uh, on one level, nobody would ever really truly want people to get hurt. But it seems like people make excuses in different industries of uh, either why these things are bound to happen or they blame individuals. Um, curious your thoughts on that. Well, yeah, yeah um, I, I agree with you. Nobody. Nobody gets up that morning and says, "I'm going to be unsafe today." Um, and and what, what's interesting is um, is that um, you you almost have to sell uh, safety. And and what I mean by that, for example, is uh, we're struggling with a, a hospital where we're working, and um, the surgeons are uh, are not interested in in doing a more structured timeout that includes them providing a briefing on the case. Um, here's what we're doing. Uh, here's why we're doing it. Uh, I expect it to last this long. This is my expected outcome. 
um, if this happens, you know, a couple of contingencies and those types of things, um, and they're resisting it. And and fundamentally, I understand why. I mean, I don't think I'm an unsafe pilot, um, and yet I know I'm an unsafe pilot, which is to say on any particular day, um, I may do something unintentionally or unaware of it, um, and, and it's unsafe. And so I don't, you know, I'm certain that, that every surgeon in that organization believes that they are safe, and they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet um, a, a safety culture, as you say, begins with the notion that on any given day, I can be part of, an, of a team that, that begins to uh, practice unsafely. And so uh, what, what we can do, though, is going right to your point of production pressure and, and financial uh, incentives and, and such, uh, financial pressure, is, is um, there, there is also, in, in, in being more organized, uh, you know, um, I don't have to tell you, lean practices not only provide a higher quality product, but they, generally speaking, become more efficient as well. Just because it's a continuous iteration of of what is best, what is the best way to do this, and so similarly, um, what we what we do quite often is is point out that the that surgical briefing, uh, starting the case, yes, it's a thirty, it's a investment of thirty seconds of time. The return on that investment is you know at least thirty seconds and probably minutes, uh, several minutes of reduced intraoperative time simply because our team is working in a more coordinated fashion. Mm-hmm. And so if, if, you tell, if you tell a surgeon you can spend less time doing your cases, that's something they do believe, yeah, my cases take too long, and it's because of the system and frustrations. And, and so uh, they, they do, that does resonate with them, and so uh, you can provide that as an initial incentive, and then when you follow up and show that, oh, by the way, uh, you know your your uh, post-op infections are down, your uh, length of stay is down, your post-op uh, medication uh, orders compliance is up. You know, and and we are raising the standard of care simply because we're willing to invest that time to coordinate our efforts. And so, uh, yeah, safety isn't sexy. <laughs> it's it just isn't. Yeah. But you know, back, back to you know the surgeons and you know and the, the general topic of quote unquote resistance to change. I mean, you, know, you would hate to think there's probably not a resistance to safety or a resistance to good outcomes. But what I hear you saying is that there's either you know some some, some sense of denial or saying well, well I haven't made these mistakes in the past, so I'm not going to make it right now. I don't need these checklists. Um, yeah. Or there's maybe a little bit of just the or, you know, maybe people think, well, yeah, yeah, the, the, you know, a mistake might happen, but what can you do? It's human error. And, you know, what I heard you saying was, you know, within a safety culture, we're all capable of error. And we recognize that. That reminds me of, of Lean and the, the Toyota notion of respect for people, Re- respects the fact that we're human and we're fallible. Um, it's just, it's it's hard to kind of, how, how, do, you fi- how do you try to find a point of alignment with the physician. I guess you, you stated one of them is, you know, investing this time saves you time. But even without that, how, how, how do you try to make the case just around safety and outcomes alone? Because, again, I, I think there's alignment there in, in terms of what they want to happen, right? Well, fortunately, um, 
which wasn't true when, when um, even 10 years ago, we really didn't have very good evidence. Uh, it, it, was, it was moving forward on face validity and, and comparison between uh, accident rates before and after and that kind of thing. But at this point, I, I really don't have to uh, worry about it. There's so much really, really good, solid evidence um, that, that these pr practices improve patient outcomes. Um, that any anybody uh, that is willing to take the time to look at the evidence, they really don't have a, a credible argument any longer. Um, but I, I think you're exactly right uh, when it comes to the resistance of, wait a minute, I, I'm very safe without these things. Um, why do I need to do these things? And I, I, I'm not unsafe. And uh, I was talking to uh, Marjorie Stiegler, who's a, uh, an anesthesiologist uh, up uh, at uh, University of North Carolina, I worked with her many years ago at um, at UCLA. In there, she was helping uh, with the simulation program there, and a lot of we just had a lot of resonance between the work she was doing, and the work I was doing. And I was talking to her about this very issue, and I said, "Okay, clearly part of it is an outcome bias, um, and she, you know, uh, which is to say that um, the patient." emerged from the hospital without any injury or harm so therefore what I was doing was safe and and she made a really good comparison you know um, to to drunk driving and how many times has a drunk driver um, you know when somebody gets pulled over a DWI or in an accident or something how many times before that had they mm -hmm. driven drunk and yet they got home safely and everything was fine um, and so it, it, it very is much it's very much human nature to yeah. to uh, to point to that and say, I don't need, I don't need to change anything. Well, there's the, uh, yeah. So, you know, the driving while drunk, you know, I think would be an example of an unsafe practice that doesn't always lead to harm. Uh, Alcoa, I've blogged about this, you know, Alcoa has always taught, um, you know, what they call the safety pyramid of sort of this hierarchy of you have unsafe practices and then at a, a smaller ratio you have you know, near misses, and then you have at a smaller ratio incidents that cause harm, and then there's, you know, kind of the tip of the pyramid, that one and a mm. large number of occurrences that actually causes death, and what they're teaching, which I think, you know, is similar to the patient safety movement, you, you need to act on not just the near misses, but the unsafe practices, and, and kind of keep in mind past performance doesn't guarantee future results, I guess, when it comes to unsafe practices. Yeah, and and you know it, that's really that's really important. I think. Um, I mean, it, on the one hand, it's sort of pathetic that we have a patient safety awareness week. Um, you know, why why is why isn't this week patient safety awareness week, or or next week why isn't that patient safety awareness week? What what have you? Um, and and so I think that you you go back to uh, recognizing. Um, well, first of all, stating stating very clearly in in job descriptions and performance expectations that you will engage in specific, very, very clearly uh, outlined uh, and defined safety practices. And so you build it into job descriptions, into evaluations, uh, credentialing, bonuses, hire and fire decisions, uh, performance reviews, what have you. And um, if, if you focus on safe practices, then you stay out of the bottom of that pyramid altogether. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, Intramountain has done that for years, and you know, um, I mean, there's—I uh, can't remember what year it was, but they were—they—they they were within, I don't know, I think it was two decimal points of the stated performance um, goal, 
and they came up short, and nobody in the system got their bonus. Mm-hmm. That year. And I, wow, that's that's a real commitment to expectations. And uh, I think when you build it into expectations, and then have the accountability there mm-hmm. uh, in, in all those different ways, I think that makes it just a part of the safe practices. Um, certainly, I'm evaluated that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, frankly, every time I fly, I'm, I'm evaluated by my peers. And they'll call me on it if if I am mm-hmm. doing something that's unsafe. They'll they'll call me on it. That that right now peer to peer accountability is critical. Um, but then I'm also evaluated at least every nine months, sometimes more frequently, by um, by FAA um, uh, evaluators uh, or or designated uh, evaluators. And and so those safe practices are just built into the job expectations mm-hmm. and I'm not going to be able to continue to practice if I'm not using yeah. them. So let, let's compare that to um, back to the healthcare realm. There was a news story I shared with you from England you know, that said you know, 5% of hospital mistakes, only 5% ever get reported. Um, staff are, it said, quote, too scared to blow the whistle for fear of repercussions. And that, and that kind of strikes a contrast to what you were describing in aviation, um, of a culture where, where people are expected, encouraged to speak up versus people who feel intimidated uh, or scared or they think it's just not going to lead to anything. Um, what, what are some of your thoughts on, on you know, that, that fear culture? How, how can you take steps to actually try to change that in healthcare where people do speak up for the right reasons? I, I think um, you know that that really uh, goes to just culture, um, but e- even that it goes back one step further of an expectation. Uh, so when I begin a, a trip, um, you know I I tell my crew, um, look, if at any time you see something doesn't look right, I expect you to speak up. You know, I am fallible. I want you to challenge me, and and so I create that expectation that they will challenge me, and and that I will challenge them, and we continuously say that to each other, um, be, because we know that we've got to do that because there is a reluctance to challenge one another, and uh, and even and to speak up even if that means that delay is the on time departure, which is such an important metric, and bonuses are tied to that. I'm sure. Yes. Right? Yes. Absolutely. And so. Um, but then this is a this is a higher level of of being willing to speak up, and I, but I do think that uh, sort of doing is becoming, and and so if if I am if I am on a consistent basis telling people that I expect them to speak up, and they're telling me they expect me to speak up, then I think it becomes easier within the organization to um, to speak up. Now that requires a lot of trust, and what you're seeing here in, in that article is that there is uh, distrust of the system, and you know commercial aviation is not immune to that that uh, wariness or that mm-hmm. fear. Um, there was, uh, golly, I, I I should remember what year it was, but several years ago, the the just culture system that operates in commercial aviation. Uh, had been shut down essentially by most of the major airlines in the U.S. And there was a brief period of less than a week when, when the just culture uh, agreements uh, were, were suspended. And, um, and it, it came down to one thing, and it was a, uh, a desire by some of the airline management teams to want to use the self-disclosure information uh, punitively. Hmm. And and boy, if you want to, I mean, and that's what you're seeing here is is 
if I speak up, I'm going to be punished for speaking mm-hmm. up. Whereas in my profession here in the U.S., um, I'm actually I'm rewarded um, for speaking up for self-reporting my errors, and and that's that's just critical. Yeah. Or I mean, there, there might be the fear if if I'm a a nurse in the operating room and I and I speak up and I don't want that surgeon to be treated in a punitive way if they were about to make an honest mistake and I caught it. You know, there, there might be that fear as well because we see people getting blamed and punished and sometimes prosecuted and jailed for yeah. making what it seems like were just honest mistakes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's, it, it's, it's just built into us, um, I, I guess, because we, um, we, we feel like, well, the only way to, to make sure something doesn't ha- happen is to punish the individual. And, um, you know, I, 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 don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there shouldn't be accountability, but but uh, you know, I had a commanding officer many years ago who who would say, you know, Monty, when you when you point your finger at somebody else, you're pointing three back at yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of use that as a good rule of thumb uh, for every everything I want to blame on the individual. I think there's probably three institutional things that we uh, should take accountability for. How is this person hired? Um, in, in, you know, if this person is, is acting, you know, you talked earlier about unsafe acts, what, what's our hiring process mm-hmm. that we let, got this person in? What are our, what are our daily practices? Are they unique in these unsafe practices or is this pretty much how things get done around here? Mm-hmm. Um, it's so on and so forth. It's, it's a really fascinating deal, but I, I think that, um, moving away from the punitive aspect mm-hmm. and going more to a, you know, um, sort of a five whys. Okay, well, why why did this happen? And and really being humble and, and honest with ourselves as an institution about um, about how we aided and abetted or, or set this system up that allowed this uh, this person to make this error or, or um, what have you. Yeah. Well, and there's uh, you can even play five whys if if it's true, if leadership says, well, you know, some uh, we've got some bad apples to your point. Who hired those bad apples? Why are we not better screening out the bad apples? <laughs> you could ask those questions, even though I you know that that would be, I think, an application of root cause analysis pointed in the wrong direction, perhaps. Um, well, yeah. And what are, what are our, our radar our, our, to identify this person and remediate the behaviors and reach out to them and, and you know, try and keep this employee? And I mean, um, I, I, I really think there are very, very few bad apples. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there's a lot that goes to, uh, you know, to reaching out to them and, and figuring out what's going on, solving yeah. the problem and not firing the person. Yeah. And, and I would encourage listeners who, who don't know about the just culture methodology, just do a Google search for that. And, and it's, you know, it's uh, it kind of gives a bit of an algorithm and some mindsets uh, to help determine if something was a systemic error or if it was the type of situation where personal accountability um, would, would be most responsible or would be most appropriate. But um, I want to delve into you know, one other headline and, and story and I'll, I'll link to this on the blog post for the episode too. Uh, a health system in Iowa had reported four wrong site surgeries within a 40-day period. And uh, you know, there were two things that jumped out at me in the comments. One was the hospital spokesperson who I assume is still employed there. Um, they said, well, you know, but there were no serious consequence reached 
that reached the patient, relatively speaking. And, you know, this included, you know, people who were cut into on the wrong side of their body. Um, but then, you know, the health system said, you know, basically that, well, you know, the mishaps were due to the improper execution of timeouts. And, you know, I was wondering if, if you could, I guess there's a couple different questions combined there, but, you know, can you talk about, you know, proper versus improper execution of timeouts? And if it's improper, if it's happening improperly, whose responsibility is that? The physicians or, or their leaders? Um, what, what, what do you think? Oh, boy. Um, you know, there's, there's a, a lot to that. The first thing that I, when I read that, I thought, you know, there's the old uh, line about minor surgery is something that somebody else has. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, and so this, you no know, serious consequences reach the patient, relatively speaking. Well, yeah, relatively, as in if, if you're not the, the patient, then you can make that remark. But, I, you know, the patient yeah. clearly I mean, feels they, that they, way. They didn't die as a result, but still, yeah. let's not go patting ourselves on the back. <laughs> yeah. And so who's who's responsible for a good timeout? Um, I, you know, everyone. And uh, But the, the, we want to avoid the, the myth of social redundancy. You know, the old saw about how do you, how do you starve a horse? You ask two people to feed it. And mm-hmm. so, um, so who is most responsible? Well, I, I, I mean, um, who is most responsible in my world? Uh, it's the captain and the person who has the highest level of authority or licensure or uh, title or power. They are the person that is most responsible. And so, yes, the, um, you know, the, 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 the surgeon and the anesthesiologist are the two persons with the highest level of licensure. And so they are, have the highest uh, responsibility uh, for it. However, um, you know clearly that the, 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 the hospital leadership has got to be involved too. It, it, four wrong site surgeries in forty days, and um, if you recall, Mark, they, there were they, they had a um, uh, there was one surgical team that was undergoing disciplinary procedures. Uh, and you, you kind of have to laugh. Seriously, you had four wrong surgeries in 40 days, and you think it's a team's fault. Mm-hmm. You think you don't think this is you've got serious problems with your systems. Um, and I guarantee that that um, if you had watched their, the timeouts prior to those events, you would have seen um, a compulsory, uh, you know, a compliance um, that was that was. Um, well, we, we met the standard, which is somebody used the word timeout, and there was some sort mm-hmm. of a one person, typically the circulator, because they are the ones, generally speaking, who are held actually held accountable uh, for the timeout. And so while they don't have any power, or at least they don't have sufficient power, um, they are held to a higher level of accountability. And so typically you will see them basically just call out to the room um, and say, okay, everybody, here's our timeout. This is Mrs. Jones, and this is what we're going to do. And uh, the surgical techs continue to prepare their instruments, and the surgeon is talking to um, whomever about something else. There is no engagement as a team. I I was absolutely blown away. I was down in Houston uh, last week and observing teams down there, and they did the finest timeouts I've ever seen. I, everybody stopped, turned. Um, it really was uh, interdisciplinary. They were, uh, everybody was talking about their role. Um, the anesthesia team, anesthesiologist said, okay, this is the antibiotics that were given at this time, and uh, the person has no allergies. And then um, the surgeon discussed, I don't anticipate any 
blood loss or if there's a possibility then we have it typed and screened it so on and so forth that was truly interactive and it's what it's what the timeout was always meant to be is yeah. let's create an effective team and that's that's what we help organizations do um, these folks had had gone a long way to doing that uh, on their own and, and that's not easy um, mm -hmm. but I really really admire the work that they've done yeah well and you know when you talk about you know timeouts that are being done in the most uh you know cursory way to say okay yeah we checked that box if, if that's happening that seems like one of those unsafe practices that isn't necessarily immediately going to lead to harm but it's one of those unsafe practices that in my mind leaders have a responsibility for detecting you know who is there is the equivalent of the faa observing you as a highly skilled professional pilot you know, who, who is there observing these highly skilled professional surgeons and their teams to say, wait a minute, here's an unsafe behavior. We have a responsibility to do something in advance instead of just reacting after harm occurs, right? Yeah, you know, and this is one of the places where, so yes, absolutely. And this is actually a place that's quite promising um, is, is as simulation becomes more and more routine. And it really doesn't have to be high fidelity simulation. Um, you can you can um, use some very low fidelity simulators that um, that still invoke and still require the the team dynamics, and and you can evaluate. You know, I can I can walk into a, a an operating theater, and we're talking in surgery, so that I can walk into a ICU and watch team rounding or uh, so many different venues. But the point is, is that I can tell if somebody's faking it. Uh, because they're just not comfortable with it. It's, it's not. It's clearly not what they always do. And people are kind of looking, and they're confused and such. So, yeah, you you can see what you can tell what's going on. What do people really do in day in and day out practice? And so I think that uh, the more we use simulation and uh, we have you know uh, peer to peer evaluations. Uh, you know, um, uh, Dr. Atul Gawande talks about. Um, how it occurred to him that, you know, the world's greatest golfers and tennis players and so on and so forth all get coaching every week. And he said, well, may maybe I could use some coaching. And, and that's, that's what I think is the future is, is uh, more peer-to-peer -peer coaching and uh, evaluation and assessment. And the simulator is a great place to do that. So I, I think there, that we're coming along. Uh, we've come a long way and we've got a long way to go. And, you know, frankly, I can say that about aviation too. We're we're, uh, I, I like the fact that high reliability organize, organizations are, are no longer the way that uh, researchers discuss it. They discuss high reliability organizing mm. because it, it describes a journey rather than a destination. And, and I think that, you know, uh, I would, I mean, I do believe that, I know commercial aviation is, is very, very safe. And yet we have, we have a long way to go. We have a long yeah. way to go. Well, so, and as a final topic, um, let's talk again about, I think there's clear parallels between checklists and lean. You talk about this being a journey. We're, we're guilty of using that phrase a lot um, in, in the lean community of saying, well, lean is a journey. Um, we have, we've talked about, you know, uh, just to oversimplify it, uh, bad checklist implementation, good checklist implementation. Um, we have really effective lean um, instances out there, and then we have organizations that do some really 
you know, almost embarrassing things. And, you know, there's studies that will show, like I just pull up here on checklists. One headline says, simple checklists save lives in the operating room, study finds. And there's a different study from the same time frame that says surgical checklists may not be effective at improving safety, study finds. And, you know, there, there are lots of studies about lean being effective. There are people who write journal articles uh, about lean not being effective. So it's, it's kind of puzzling, like, you know, where is the truth here? Or is it really possible to have simultaneous existence of effectiveness and, and ineffectiveness? Um, we were also going to talk about, I think, along these lines, you know, an article I blogged about from the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, Pamela Hartspan and Jerome Groupman, a couple of doctors from uh, Harvard-affiliated institutions, were, were decrying lean and efficiency experts and saying that this is, you know, uh, not appropriate for healthcare, and they, and they weren't even trying to point to data. It was really more of, a, of an editorial. So kind of in my long-winded, I don't know if this is, even ends up being a question, <laughs> I was curious, for one, you know, your thoughts on, you know, the, these conflicting studies or, you know, simultaneous existence of bad and good examples, um, and then, you know, that, that New England Journal of Medicine article, um, maybe, you know, first off, the, the good and the bad simultaneously. How, how is that? Well, um, so I, first of all, I think they are very closely uh, related, uh, both of the, the, the um, articles or issues. Um, the, you know, with the, uh, I mean, I really respect Dr. Groupman, and I, uh, you know. I, I do too. Yeah. When, when, I, when I read through that article, there was one line in there that I thought actually reflected uh, really what their point was, and that is, you know, good medical care takes time. And there is no one best way to treat many disorders. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's okay, I get that. Um, but um, you know, what they're really decrying is cookbook medicine. And, and that's not what I think anybody's advocating for. But even in internal medicine and, mm -hmm. and uh, Dr. Hartspan, you know, clearly there are, there's a lot of complexity in some of those diagnoses. But, but there, there are also some some uh, common elements that all doctors uh, share, and that is they are humans, mm -hmm. and therefore they are, um, they are sub, in fact, Dr. Groupman talks about this in how doctors think. They are subject to human error, human uh, cognitive errors. And so, uh, you know, a diagnostic pause is a protocol um, to avoid type one diagnostic errors. And, and so it is a, it is a standard way for us to have a, a to, to uh, to bias out the things that we know are wrong with with, with some of the way that our, our brain works, and mm -hmm. so uh, there is a protocol, um, you know, a standard work that we can put into place to make sure that we are we are using our, our higher order thinking to to avoid these types of errors. And so, um, it, when you read the rest of the article, it's clear that, and, and this really blows my mind about these two, that they have absolutely no idea what lean is. Um, yeah, I, so, I don't think they were even exposed to lean done badly. I mean, it just uh, seems like they're just pontificating. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're very frustrated, and I get it. I, I would be too. Oh, but, and they they have valid complaints, but I think they're kind of yeah. pointing at the wrong cause of those things that are frustrating to them and other doctors. Uh, agreed. And so, yes, there is lean. Yeah, I love it when I go somewhere, and and you know, I'm I'm I am not qualified to to really do lean like you do. Uh, but I love it when I hear somebody say, yeah, we did lean. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, well, then no, you didn't. Uh, exactly. And, 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 and so it's the same kind of thing. You know, uh, there's, there are checklists done well and checklists done poorly. And uh, Peter Pronovost at uh, Hopkins mm-hmm. and uh, there's some researchers in Sweden, all of whom have said, look, putting checklists into place without really, really grounding them well in a, in a system is actually arguably uh, in, increasing, exposing patients to greater risk. And, and so, look, um, you know, I mean, 5S or spaghetti diagrams or any of that, those are tools. And, and very similarly, a checklist is a tool. Um, but let, let, let's consider, you know, okay, let's take it out of context and, and look at a, a carpenter's tool belt. Okay, it's a standard set of tools. But the carpenter must be trained on how to use it, right? And the same is true with standard work. Uh, you know, uh, the the carpenter has to integrate with other trades, and so um, you know, a, a checklist uh, has it will not work on its own. It's got to be embedded in in teamwork behaviors and just culture algorithm and, and a management system uh, that supports it. Uh, the the carpenter uh, follows a structural blueprint. You know, well, uh, gamble walks, metrics, publishing. Success, uh, you know, um, visual management boards—all of these are, are, you know, the milieu, the structural blueprint within which the the carpenter, you know, functions. Um, and, and you know, and and then there is a, the builder who's overseeing the carpenter, and that and that's really, you know, the lean management team and such. And so, and in the last piece is that, and this goes back to we did lean is the house still needs maintenance after it's been built. And so, um, you know, checklists are the same thing. They've got to be, uh, first of all, either designed or modified by, by the end users, uh, respect for people. They have to be, um, they should be uh, routinely maintained. They should be updated to reflect the, you know, uh, latest evidence base. They uh, need to be, um, everybody needs to be trained on how to use them properly. And, and we use, you know, uh, TWI principles to do that. Um, and so I, I think that that I, first of all I I, um, I I think the biggest takeaway is that whether it's a, a checklist um, or a or standard work or lean tools or any of that they've got to be embedded in a in a system um, and for the checklist it's got to be a system of of, uh, of the willingness and the and the knowledge of how to challenge one another and to say wait a minute no we're going to use the checklist you know the ones that have shown failure. Um, the 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 way that they uh, evaluated were people using the checklist was self-reported completion, and yet the studies that have gone and looked at it have found anywhere between uh, well study right down at the uh, University of Texas in only two point three okay so reported compliance with using a checklist uh, a thirteen item checklist timeout checklist the reported compliance was one hundred percent. And yet, when they went and they did observations, and only 2.3% of the cases were more than seven of the items completed of a 13-point checklist. And so, when you go and look at the studies of, look, it didn't change the you know morbidity, mortality. Uh, well, you, really, you're talking about self-reporting, and that's how you're assessing. So there was no training. There was it was like how to how to implement a checklist wrong and. You know, I, I think that that Dr. Pronovost and and the folks out in Sweden are, are correct that it is increasing the risk to simply say, "Here's a checklist, use it." Uh, probably increases the risk to the patient. 
And, you know, I mean, you bring up a lot of points that remind me of, you know, the way Toyota people today describe lean. Um, you know, I've shared this framework in earlier editions of, of, of my book and on the blog, the idea that lean uh, Toyota production system, it's not just the technical tools where you could say, okay, well, hey, send me uh, your checklist. Okay, that checklist is the tool, but then there's also the underlying philosophies. There's the, the managerial approach. How do we make sure the checklist is actually being used in the right spirit? How do we update it? How do we improve it over time? I mean, it seems like whether it's with checklists or with lean, there, there's enough body of evidence out there about what needs to be done, but we, we still hear, you know, horror stories, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, the, the clunky 5S initiative where, you know, employees are told you can't have a family photo on your desk and you can't put a cardigan on the back of your chair. Like, I don't know what that has to do with right. you know, the results or the goals of the company. I, I, I had somebody send me a tw <laughs> tweet earlier today um, in, in a healthcare setting. Um, I, I won't say where because this is, you know, a accusation that I can't confirm, but it seems believable that they're complaining that because of quote unquote lean, managers are timing how long staff smile when they're greeting patients, that the smile has to be seven seconds long. And and that, that if, if that happened, and gosh, I can believe that it may have happened somewhere, I'd say, but that, that that's not lean. That's somebody misapplying a tool called standard work, but they don't understand the purpose of it or the philosophy of it. And if it's if it's making people that upset, wait a minute, timeout, um, different type of timeout. Yeah, something's wrong here, right? Well, yeah, and, and then you understand, you begin to understand why uh, folks like you know Dr. Groupman uh, get upset, and and, mm -hmm. and they're right. If it's if it's as you described, lame, um, then mm -hmm. yeah, and and it it really hurts folks like you and and the folks that uh, you know. Um, are really trying to be diligent and serious about it, uh, yeah. about using uh, lean to improve care. Uh, it makes it hard for you to well, do it. Well, but you know, I, I mean, ultimately, I don't. I, it it doesn't hurt me as much as I think that it hurts the organizations and the patients that deserve better. They deserve real lean. Uh, otherwise, like I said, doing doing lame or fake lean or whatever term you use. Um, causes maybe more problems than if they had done nothing. And, you know, so in the spirit of Patient Safety Awareness Week, that's really what, what drives me and gets me up in the morning. It's not about, quote unquote, implementing lean. It's about improving patient safety. And I, I appreciate that, that, that you share that passion as well. I do, Mark, and and I, I also um, it, it's also about um, you know you imagine the frustration of the nurse at the bedside, the, the the doc who's saying why are we why are you timing, why are you walking around and timing me and so mm -hmm. on and so forth, uh, and so uh, it, they all go together. Uh, you talked about Alcoa, and they all they all tie together. Mm -hmm. So and and I've I've read complaints about uh, residents were complaining that they were being followed around by engineering interns who were timing how long they were in the bathroom, and I'm like, oh come on, that's <laughs> that's that's the stuff that gives us all uh, it does. that give, that gives lean and improvement um, a bad name. So on well. Hmm. Do, do, let, let's end on a positive note. Can you tell me, uh, as we wrap up here, um, you know, a kind of a positive patient safety improvement story, so we can end on uh, a little bit better note. You know, um, the uh, I, I, I get um, every once in a while we we have you know we we see an article published and and 
you know, it, it's, it's, we, we saved, you know, uh, Ohio State just published a really nice article talking about how much they've invested in implementing the CRM and, and I got to work with them and then how much it saved them. Uh, and really those savings are in patient outcomes too, mm-hmm. you know, so that's huge and, and wonderful. But I, uh, I, there was a hospital system um, in Ohio that I hadn't spoken with for several years and I was afraid that it was going to be those, you know, yeah, we, we did lean kind of places where they, it was a, a flash in the pan and it went away. And I, I heard from um, their chief learning officer and she, she called and she said, oh yeah, we, we do this all the time and it is such a successful program and we have, you know, we've, we've caught so many, um, you know, mistakes and, and possible, you know, accidents and, and untoward outcomes simply because we, we implemented this, this one word and, and that they, they chose the word cardinal and I don't know why, but it was a way to call the team's attention to, hey, wait a minute, this is a safety issue and they could use that word, and it was it was psychologically safe for them to say that, and for people to stop and listen to them. And and so, hearing that you know they had prevented a couple of OR fires and potentially you know these these wrong surgeries and stuff, um, that's boy that that, that makes your day. And yeah. so yeah, uh, it's sometimes we don't know about about how far things are rippling and and how they're doing. Yeah. Well, and and. You know, for for all the things that are frustrating, um, it's it's good to see the positive and the progress that's being made. Um, even if there's still a lot of progress uh, still to be made, uh, I appreciate that you're helping so many people in that process. So, uh, Steve, thank you for being a guest here on the podcast. Well, we'll have to do this again. There's so much we could talk about, and it's always a pleasure uh, to chat with you and hear your perspectives. Mark, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, looking forward to the next time. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.